my first real pop of success came off of MySpace. And I signed, ended up signing a uh, multi-album record and publishing deal in London. And I moved to London for basically four years. We need to be doing that. A podcast that combines sports, social media, content, and life. Though we make no promises, we'll stick to those topics each episode. I'm Jonah Ballo. I'm Keith Steckler. And on this podcast, we'll often focus on the sports content and creative we see and like and share between the three of us. We need to be doing that. I'm Elliot Gerard. These are the discussions we have most days in person or group text. Now with the microphones on and recording. We've known each other since 2009. We have experience in ad agencies and marketing, digital content across teams in the NBA, and creative for brands, teams, and athletes. Come on. We need to be doing that. All right, guys, I wanted to bring on a friend of mine to the podcast, Julian Villard. And Julian has a very interesting story. He's a musician, does a lot of work on social media, social media content with his music that I've found interesting. And also, I think I've decided, yep, you're the first person that I hung out with in New York. Uh, When I was with the Knicks, you took me out in Brooklyn, got me wasted. So um, I thank you for that. And uh, now I feel like I'm a seasoned pro nine years deep into my New York experience. I can't believe that was like basically nine years ago. It's just insane to think about. But uh, yeah, that tracks. Yeah, you you got a wife uh, and two kids now. Things have certainly (laughs) changed. Yes, they have, Jonah. Yes, they have. (laughs) Wow, the despair in your voice. We'll leave it at that. The quarantine has made it all too real. It's kind of nuts to think about it. But, you know, it's funny. I, I think how we met, I mean, it wasn't my first real, like, major digital success because I'd had some earlier. But it was like the way we met and the and the content which we met around, which sounds very strange, but it's true. That was a big kind of turning point in in my philosophy of creating digital media. Well, yeah, I mean, it was Jeremy Lin who brought us together. So we should thank Lin Sanity because, you know, for folks out there who maybe have not paid attention to the NBA in the past decade and or New York Knicks basketball, Jeremy Lin basically lit the city on fire. Uh, He was a player that came in, really was you know, the first Asian American who had that kind of success at that level, especially in New York City when they desperately needed it for the Knicks. And for me, uh, I was a year into the gig working in, you know, the NBA with the New York Knicks. I previously was with the Minnesota Timberwolves and it just exploded. My bosses at the time were like, I don't care if you stay up 24 hours a day. We want content all day, all night. And Julian had this great idea to create a music video around Linsanity. And he's like, listen, man, I'll do the music the uh, mixing, the video, the whole thing. And and I was like, let's do it. It turned out to be a really great piece of content. And I went back and watched it the other day. I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I It, it kind of took a while to like be like, wow, I can't believe we did this, right? It's, I think I rewatched it recently and I was like, how do, and I did that all in like a Miami hotel room. I have no idea how I did that. I'm like, dude, this is weird. Like hoop sounds for the snare drum. It was like, you had like I mean, a, studio, you know, was, a studio quality song. I, I Which I blow, blows my mind because I wasn't using like a, a really sophisticated setup. I was like, wow, that sounds a lot better than what I'm doing now. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of brutal to like that. The, I think now obviously you have some context because you've lived here for a decade, but you see how hungry this city is. And, that, and now just having completed the last dance and having to like relive right, the, right. Tra- the yeah. trauma of the nineties Knicks <laughs> kind of, you know, when Jeremy Lin came along, it was, I mean, as a lifelong Knicks fan, 
it was like, or, you know, reformed Knicks fan. It was like the greatest, it was basically like the greatest moment of my father and I, like it brought my father and I were hugging. It was amazing. Like it, 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 it you know, for nine games. Well, that, that's a good point. <laughs> <For nine games. laughs> yeah, it was only like a three-month span that you got. Now, no, you bring up a good point with you and your father and kind of the origins of your career as a New Yorker, born and bred. Uh, kind of give us a little bit of background of where you grew up, how you grew up, and how you landed at this spot in your career as a musician. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been here pretty much my whole life. I had a couple weird... Um, sort of tangents, but basically I've been, I grew up in New York, was born and raised in the Upper West Side. My father's from France. Um, My mother's from Alabama. And I went to performing arts high school here, uh, which is, you know, the the LaGuardia High School for the Performing Arts, but it's also, you know, more known as the fame high school, you know, what the movie's about. And I I went to uh, liberal arts college in Western Massachusetts and came back. And basically when I got out of school, I was gigging. I was trying to kind of you know, make it as a singer songwriter for lack of a better word. And I think uh, I was dogging it out in the city for about five or six years, just doing gigs, trying to get rid of the village voice. And this is right after September 11th. And I, my first real pop of success came off of MySpace. Um, and I signed, ended up signing a uh, multi-album record and publishing deal in London. And I moved to London for basically four years. And that all you know, was my first, because I just was, you know, I built my own website. I was just always really inclined in that area. And it's funny, it's, it's, it's weirdly taken till now for me to fully embrace that reality. It's just, I always thought that the digital thing was something that I did, you know, as a add on or a way to, you know, give people stay connected to people. But I'm now realizing that it's, it's sort of been the primary source of discovery in my career. You know, I've never really I've had some success on mainstream media and but all that success has come from it's been born from the the, all the content that I make online. I mean, that's how people find me. And that's how, you know, I ultimately ended up on doing stuff for Howard Stern or ended up doing stuff for NPR. It's all been through things that started digitally and just kind of grew. I feel like I'm in this really interesting nexus point as a musician where I'm kind of tail end of Gen X or and. So I'm not quite a millennial, but I'm almost a millennial, but I've always, I saw, you know, and I, I kind of came up trying to do the, the traditional way of doing things with these more modern tools. And I've now kind of, I've sort of always been caught between these two generations. And now obviously the entire way you, you kind of, as a content creator, I mean, having a digital presence and a way to take your art and or whatever you make and put it out there online is essential. It's just something that I've always kind of, you know, whether it was Friendster or MySpace or Facebook or Spotify or Twitter or YouTube or whatever it was, you know, I always sort of was working within those mediums. Did these platforms, I mean, did they come easy to you? They probably are a little bit more so now, but when you were first getting going, was it, I guess, a necessary evil you had to be on them or did they come pretty easy to you? They came, you know, they're, they're harder for me now than they were because sophistication of the viewer has become so it's it's so nuanced and it's so ingrained in the way that people, um, you know, you can't it, you have to figure out a way to communicate to people w- with the language of the platform. And I think at first, you know, I was always sort of, I mean, I programmed, I was always into, I played role playing games. I was very, I had like a really deep nerdy side, and a lot of my songwriting as as a songwriter kind of came from the love of that, the love of building stuff, and so. 
you know, making profiles and stuff all felt very intuitive, especially with something like MySpace, which was super creative at first. And, you know, there was a lot of, you know, it was completely unformatted. And, you know, now it's, you know, you're, you're in this thing where you're, you have to learn the language of the, the app. It's very, um, you know, it's, it, it, I mean, one thing that is interesting about what's been going on with, you know, the, the pandemic is that it's really kind of pushed a lot of these apps. You know, I jumped on the live streaming thing really, really early when it all popped off and I really saw the benefit of that. And I watched how something like Instagram was refining their, their live streaming network in real time they all of a sudden started putting time limits on how long you could do it or you know and it, it was kind of wild to see that happen in the moment like you woke up the next day and it's like oh can't do 90 minutes anymore oh you can't do this any you know and it's it's just fascinating because those are i felt like for a second almost somebody there was like a crack in the matrix you know <laughs> like where people are like, all right now everybody's like you know if, if jimmy fallon is using zoom to record his shows all bets are off like anybody can do anything <laughs> right. and, you know it as, is the wild wild and, west yeah and and that's still there but i think you know now that it's been it's becoming returning to sort of a state of normalcy it's it's you know plus that coupled with um you know the the end i think the reality of the situation is hitting home more it feels like it's a little trickier to you know the novelty is worn off and I just feel like, okay, well, what's, what's another way that I can kind of get the content out there? Because that's, what's exciting to me about now is that there are these opportunities that are being created. And I do think there's windows to make, to make things. It seems like musicians are, are really a big part of this in terms of like DJs and whatnot, you know, um, like DJ nice, um, doing those like parties, which it seems like, you know, they're maybe making constrictions on that. You know, what's your thought on all these musicians? Like, is it oversaturated at this point? Like, like you're saying, like, it's, yeah, just, I mean, I think, look, it's, it's the hardest thing to do in all of this as a creator is to create a brand, right? That's the hardest thing to do. And inherently, if you have, if you already have a platform, you, you, you have an advantage, you know, because you have, and especially as, as you know, I, I guess it's, it's actually an economic philosophy, you know, superstar economics. It's the more content people get or the more information, the more likely they are to stick with something they know. To figure out a way to connect to people, I'm hopeful that there will be opportunities for different kinds of content for people who are versatile and fluid and self, you know, basically self-starting and self-produced. But ultimately, you know, the power of celebrity is too huge. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's and that's sort of what is the driving engine of our culture. Mainstream media is still the best and easiest way to create a brand. I mean, I don't see this disruption happening to the point where people just like and it, I mean, it, it, it's happened with YouTube. But I think I, I, having also worked in that sphere and I don't know if I told you this, I think I, for a minute, I, you know, I don't do it anymore. But I was working with influencers and kind of getting to see how that whole animal worked. And what I thought was so interesting about the influencers, most of the people who were really big, it was because they started when YouTube started. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they caught a wave. Right. So like they, they were one of the, they were just on it and they created an audience and it was sort of through luck. Trying to create that audience now is a much different proposition. We've gone down the road of kind of where you're at. And I think we should talk about sort of the things that you're creating now, but back to, you know, the origins of your story and how do you battle the idea of being a traditional musician playing a piano, something that is, you know, you've talked about Billy Joel. I didn't ask you to play piano, man, because it pissed you off. So I, I, I saved you from that. Thank you. 
appreciate it. Appreciate your kindness there. You know, how do you battle that with sort of the modern musician and what you have to create? And I think it seems like you do have a lot of fun, you know, creating the, you know, comedic little bits and, and things that you're putting out on social. But the idea of, you know, maybe the traditional sense that doesn't necessarily exist right now for musicians in a, in a different way of coming up if you want to be seen. Well, well, for me, I, 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 I honestly, I'm not missing it. You know, I did, I've done so much gigging and performing in my life that I do think in a weird way, performance is kind of inherently flawed. Like, and I was talking about this with my friend last night, you know, if you have an audience, you know, there's something kind of really pure about the digital medium that you can just create content and throw it into the universe and see who it attracts, right? You can't really do that on a gig. You're performing a function. Even if you're a rock star, you're performing a function, right? You're performing a societal function to whoever's paid to come to the show to get the experience they want, which in, in that paradigm, it's playing the songs they know, right? That's always the dilemma. And if you're at a piano bar, it's playing Billy Joel songs, right? They don't want to hear your original music. <laughs> yeah. So the thing that I think that's exciting, because for me, songwriting and performing, it's always been a function of storytelling and narrative, you know, and even when I'm on stage doing something, I'm always approaching at it with a perspective I'm, and, and I'm always telling some form of a story. And I think that's something I run into a lot with people that that um, sometimes have difficulty with what I do because they don't understand that when they meet me on stage, they're not really meeting me. They're meeting a character. And yeah. I think what's really interesting about the digital space is that's sort of like, I don't know, it's it, it's just it's just more baked into it. Right. I mean, I think like look at look at these lifestyle influencers. Right. And and the way that their whole thing works, where it's like I'm sh I don't know if people actually believe that those people are the people that they are in, but they don't question it. You know, I think it's there's something much more tricky when you get on stage and, and, and people uh, people buy into that more when you like I always my, my my great my favorite sort of comparison is I always think of Gavin DeGraw, right? Gavin DeGraw's never taken his hat off in 20 years on stage, right? He's just yeah. never taken it off because he's completely bald underneath. No one, none of the girls know, right? right. But he takes it off and it's straight up Gallagher, right? It's like he has this hair that's grown out and it's totally bald. But, but And it's this whole game. And I think, I don't know, it's like, I feel like that would shatter the, his entire career if he ever took his hat off. Whereas I think somehow on digital media, it's a little bit more maybe the expectation because they're looking at their phone. I don't really know, but it just feels like there's more room to be a character. There's more room to, to tell a story and there's more playfulness. And I feel like it's in a weird way. It's like someone took the gloves off for me. So do you feel like right? you're more yourself on social Absolutely. as opposed I mean, to I, performing? My, my curse is that I'm always myself. But I feel like there's more room for me to be myself. That's an interesting right? point. Yeah. Like so I you... can do things that are weird and quirky and kind of that have a my profile and my brand is the narrative. So they're like, and, you know, and I need to think about that. I need to find ways. You know, I just ran this Kickstarter campaign and I was working with actually a great digital media company kind of as a sounding board. And one of the ideas I came up with was this idea of interviewing my kids. Right. Because that's part of my identity is. And it was really interesting after doing about six to seven weeks of kind of basically beta testing these concepts for my brand, just throwing shit and seeing what people wanted. They responded to, to three things, right? They responded to whenever I talked about Billy Joel in whatever way, shape or form, they responded to whenever my kids were on camera. And, and, and then uh, 
that pretty much was it. When I talk about Billy Joel and my kids. So what I, what I figured out was like, all right, well, I have this message I'm trying to get through. So how do I, these are my two pathways where I'm going to get traction on the views, right? So how do I create a narrative about Billy Joel that serves what the story that I'm trying to tell? And in this instance, it was about my Kickstarter and trying to drive people to, to, to play, to contribute. And with my kids, and, and, and it, it, it's a little crass, and it's, but it, there was something about that that felt very like way simpler than like I can tell a joke on stage and people can, you know, take me. They, they don't they don't get the sarcasm. They don't get the humor. It sort of falls on deaf ears. They're like, well, wait, you know, I, I have this song called Glad I Wasted All My Time With You that I play live. And it's one of my it's like kind of a real, you know. Uh, standby to my set and I often will get the comments being like it's such a beautiful song why do you say that you wasted your time with your wife and it's it, I just look at them like are you like have you not been watching like weird Mr. New York guy this whole like don't you get it it's like the character singing no right, right. they don't get it at all and I yeah there's something about the digital space that allows people's brains to kind of take that in I mean you definitely have to work in these real broad strokes like I'm dad guy I'm Billy Joel guy you know you can't you can't be nuanced about it, but I do think people are a lot, maybe it's just asking less of them to like it than it is to sit through a show. I don't know. So when, when you create an album, are you trying to create like a long form content? Like, are you creating a novel or are you creating short stories? This album is very much that. So I basically made a record that is a fictional musical, uh-huh. right? And it's, it's very involved and it's very, but it's essentially about a guy who has a midlife crisis and his midlife crisis is the musical that you're listening to. Right. And the name of the album is please don't make me play piano man, official Queens cast recording. Right. The joke. Yeah. That I was going to ask you right. about playing Billy. Joel. Right. Right. So that's, you know, but part of that was that, okay, I am not really making an album here. I'm not even the game of making pop songs anymore. I'm trying to get a character across. I'm trying to get a persona across. And these songs are like my bullets. They're my, they're my content. Right. And they're my, and so some of the extensions, you know, I have a podcast that I've developed around these songs and around the character. Hmm. And that may actually end up turning into a YouTube TV show where I Mm -hmm. showcase the songs, you know, and I've, I've really tried to think on a cross-platform way because, you know, the album is still my, that's still my kind of, my, my uppercut, right? That's a thing I can do that a lot of other people can't do. And I've spent my whole life, but how do I, and I think for me, what my hope is, is that if I can get the character across in the album or the, 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 the piece of content, the body of work, that people are going to listen to the songs. They're going to connect with them harder because they know the guy who's singing them, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a base, like how a musical works. Right. When you get to that point in the character and the character sings, you know, you're you're with the character. And I think that's the way I look at it. Um, but that's not something you can do, really, when you get on stage in a t- generic venue and they're just looking for the guy kind of trying to write, sing songs about his broken heart or this. You know, they're, they're looking for one specific thing where I think in the Internet, it's wide open. You know, it's yeah. it's a, it's it's rife with experimentation. So when I sat down to write this, I very much was thinking the character was the was the driving force it wasn't the songs it wasn't even the plot of the album it was like how do i get this viewpoint across and i am obviously the character which is it's sort of the same thing but it's definitely it's it's definitely very curb your enthusiasm-esque in that respect you know i'm playing <laughs> nice. the larry david version of myself curb your th- enthusiasm the musical that is that would be amazing 
Oh, please. I'd take that. I'd do that in a heartbeat. I know. Right. Right. But that was very conscious for me. That was very, um, I, I, cause I've done albums and like, I do think that I've aged out of that. And also it's just, it's not even really about the album anymore. It's just the, it's, it's about the, it's like how people are investing in the narrative of the artist, right? Mm-hmm. They're not investing in the album. The album is a really kind of an irrelevant grouping. It's really just the moment of conversation around it. And you see it with artists that are really successful. There isn't an artist out there in music. And this is the pop world, which is not my world right now. The reason we care more about the artist's narrative and the songs all serve it, you know, even when the artist sort of has an absence of a narrative, like I don't really know what Dua Lipa is about, but like she's definitely crafted this idea of who she is through her songs. Right. She probably probably it's definitely a total invention. You think about any major artist that anybody cares about right now. They care just as much about the story of the artist as they do the song. That's and I think that's kind of that's certainly where music is at. And I would argue that's where like a lot of media is at. You know, I think television and it still sort of has this mystique around it, but it's only because of the production value and the technology and the ease with which like it's all heading there. You know, that's why people want to watch. They want to binge series. They want to they want to invest themselves in. Daenerys Targaryen. These are all things that were there in the culture, but they've like really accelerated. And, and, you know, I think we'll continue to accelerate now that like production is becoming almost for at least for the time being kind of non-existent. I wanted to discuss a man that you and I both grew up listening to, Howard Stern. So Stern is an incredible, like that's where Stern is a real innovator. He was onto that in the eighties, man. He took yeah. the cast yep. and he made them part he of the made story. Them part of the show. Exactly. People, right. people care more about what JD's doing and what Ronnie is doing than any celebrity he ever gets. And the traction he will get on the show. I mean, yes, they're all like, wow, you got Leo DiCaprio or you got whoever you get in there. But the episodes where like he's ragging on JD are just as popular. Growing up in New York. Here you are now on the wrap-up show. And if people are not familiar with the Howard Stern show, he has his, you know, three to four hour radio show and then another hour wrapping it, which is another genius thing that he provides more content to his show by doing a wrap-up show in which his staff talk shit about what went on the show and then they play it on his show the next day. So you got a chance to be on the wrap-up show and create these jingles. I mean, what was that like for you to be a lifelong Stern fan and then to be a part of the show? I, so, I mean, it's for me, you know, I think Stern for you, Jonah, is like a way, you know, he, because of what you do in your background, he's like an icon, you know, mm-hmm. he's like your, he's like what Tom Waits is to me or Bob Dylan, you know, I, I just, you know, Stern growing up in New York, I mean, he just, just, it was just omnipresent. I knew Stern like I know Billy Joel, like I know the New York Knicks. He was just part of the fabric of my mm-hmm. youth. When I got that gig, which started out, like, I basically said yes to it. Because um, Steve Brandano, who's a close friend, is kind of the main music interface for the show. He became a fan of my music. And I remember he came to one of my shows and he was just like, hey, great to meet you. We started talking. Okay. He's like, just by the way, don't ever ask me to get on the show because you're never going to get on the show. Let's just hang out. I'm like, great. Not a problem. And I'm sure he has to do that all the time. I've actually hung out with Brandano too. So we've we've crossed paths on so many different levels. He's the best. No, and and, and I, I... he just straight up, he was like, we we're having a drink. He's like, just don't even ask. Let's just like, let's just drop it. And like, not like I was going to, but you know, fair enough. Then 18 months later, he's like, we're hanging out. And he's like, look, I have this idea for how I can get you on, but it's kind of nuts. And I just said yes before he even really processed what it was. And basically what they had me doing is they wanted me to show up and make up songs about whatever transpired that day. Right. 
And, and it's something I didn't even know I could do. But basically, again, it was just content. So I basically got to this point where I was just, they would put me in at seven in the morning and I would write three songs about whatever they talked about that day. And I would just spit them back out. And sometimes they were parodies. Sometimes they were originals. And basically a couple of times the content would get sort of circulated and like Stern Howard liked it. So he would play it. And like, that's a lot of where, and I have to say, I've done a lot of crazy stuff. I've, you know, I wrote a song that Jonah broadcast on the Knicks website at the Heidel Insanity. I have never seen a bump to my social media than when Howard Stern talked about me. I've just never, it was just, it's a beyond, it was like, and I, this is the New York Knicks. Like I did a thing that was featured on their site. It's a huge bump. Stern talked about me for 90 seconds. Julian Villar, great music. It was just like, and now I'm not even kidding. I'll do corporate gigs in, you know, when I did gigs in like a random middle of Florida, I've, people at the front desk being like, are you the La Cunta Caldo guy? <laughs> I just know it's just, and I'm like, I'm like, how is this? I have, I play casinos playing covers at casinos and I've guys shouting it out in the crowd. I'm like, what is this? This is insane. It's like this. And it's literally a blip that they'll run again on the show. It's just something in the annals of the insanity of his stuff that like the fan base is so rabid and so diehard, but he is, absolutely someone i mean the whole show is this crazy narrative and storytelling of his cast for 40 years or whatever it's been it's bonkers and i think that's kind of you know i think he really is like one of the first people to do that i can't think of anybody who had that you know no you know i'm, I'm trying to think if like yeah if like letterman did it or any of these early guys really did it but stern just went so deep on it you know to sort of showcase all these guys and and sort of make them really the show it was an amazing experience like it's i you know i haven't done it for a minute because they changed the format but the relationship is still there so they'll ask me to do stuff every now and then i never met howard i told jonah that which is totally nuts i've like met everybody else but you don't really get to meet howard i don't want to brag or anything but i did interview him so <laughs> That's, so when you when you you know i know when you did that like I now realize what a big deal that was is because he just doesn't like you don't talk to Howard. No one gets to talk to Howard. I, just, I, I'm not kidding. I shit you not. It's the only celebrity. I interviewed probably 30 celebrities at my time at the New York Knicks. Chris Rock, Seth Meyers, Kevin Hart, all of them. When I asked that first question, I blacked out after it. I do not remember anything. Yeah, and it, it was a two minute interview. And I still, to this day, look at it as if it was an out-of-body experience. Because, again, it, we're talking about, I wanted to go into radio. That was my whole career direction. And to be interviewing the king of all media at that point was was the greatest moment in my career. But, but like, you, like that was, that's not, that nobody gets that in it. Like, no one talks. I, I don't get it. I don't you know, know how, like, what happened. I don't know how you, I, I, you basically, like, he wanted the Knicks ticket. So, he had to talk to you. I you think know? he felt yeah. bad for me. I was, like, shaking yeah. and, <laughs> and, like, sweating both. <laughs> I mean, it was like, this kid's going to pass out if I don't give him a couple minutes. Robbins walked in on the bathroom. Like, they're all so approachable, except for him. Ronnie lets me into the bathroom. Like, I can't go to the bathroom without Ronnie with his card. They're <laughs> locked. So Ronnie's the security guard. Like, you want to go take a piss, you got to get Ronnie to let you in. So every time I need to go to the bathroom, I'm like, Ronnie, can you let me in the bathroom? It's ridiculous. They're all incredible people and approachable. Just Howard, you just, you know. You have to clear the hallway when he walks through. It's the whole nine, you know? Yeah. Wow. It's the man behind the curtain a little bit. Which is fine. You know what, man? Like, uh, that, totally. I, I'm actually okay with it because he never presents himself like he's anything but that. I want to talk to you about your direction and moving forward. Is this part of your career now, if you look at it, sort of also 
following who you are as, as a human being with a father with two children. And, and, I mean, you know, we've talked about your times in London. We can't bring them up on the podcast, I'm sure, but uh, you've had some fun times, right? And overseas and, yeah, and obviously I, the I, New York city. You know, my, my whole trip is, is like, I, really for me, I'm just most interested in writing songs that tell stories and using my skill as a songwriter and my passion to try to, to try to further a narrative. And, I just happen to have my narrative to work with. You know, my dream is, is that somehow, some way I would bump into the right person or this thing that I do would get big enough that I would then get asked to do this on a level for something that was not my life. Right. Mm -hmm. Because like, it's cool. It's a great artistic experience. And it's like, I, I'm very proud of the work that I make, but I, it's also like really hard work to mine psychologically mine your own material. And ultimately it's very niche. You know, I don't, I, I'm limited by my own platform, right? Unless I really somehow hit a home run. And even then I've hit home runs, but they don't translate, you know? Mm -hmm. The the huge, the amount of people that come and check out my Jeremy Lin song don't then go check out my music, you mm -hmm. know? Same thing as the people who listen. I mean, they come, but they're rare. They're there for that piece of viral content and then they move on. So my dream is that somehow something that I do will get to the right person you know, I, I think that's almost more what I hope my future is rather than like I, be, I become like a rock star or some digital version of a rock star. That said, ironically, I think that my content is probably my best pathway to that, meaning that like it would probably be something as life imitating art that I would make my own digital show about myself that would springboard me to that next thing. You know, I would love it if it didn't have to be me. But there's something about that that is like that's the entry point. And I, I wish, you know, it sometimes is difficult because people think that I, you know, it because they think, oh, I'm just this, you know, that I don't have this skill set that I can't do all this different stuff. And, and I think I, if I somehow am able to create my own content that picks up enough speed and hits enough of the markers and, you know, like Judd Apatow comes calling or whoever it is that is the, you know, the, or the digit, you know, the version of that or and says, hey, we want to make the movie of your life or. We, I love what you do. Can you write five songs for this thing? You know, that that's where I want to be with it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I and I realize that my telling my own story is probably my best. It's my best shot. Well, in that sense, also, and I felt this way before. Sometimes I get frustrated when I have to alter the content because it's either somebody else paying me to do the content or sure. it's part of an organization. Does it feel freeing at all that even though you might have to take a step back in the sense from a financial standpoint or, you know, uh, not getting to reach a bigger audience, but you do control the medium. You do control the yeah. content. It's, it's yours and yours only. I mean, yes, because from a, uh, that shifts when you have kids, you know, because like, like my time, yeah. just, your time oh, yeah. becomes, becomes so in demand that I, I'm still, as proud of what I've just made, like, I'm very proud that I have this great body of work or this body of work that I completely control, you know, I mean, I, like, for at least my last 10 years, I completely control, and that I can do whatever I want with it. And it's really a nice peace of mind to have. But, you know, going forward, the sort of risk reward of that, it gets it gets skewed, you know, because I do think that, like, I have this pretty considerable skill set of telling stories with songs that I feel like I'd love to reach. And, and, and honestly, I'm at a point, I think, where I'm willing to make the compromises. Like, I don't I don't want to make the compromises with my own story unless someone gives me a lot of money, then I will. 
when it's somebody else's thing, I'm like, I'm, I, I couldn't be more flexible. And I think in a lot of ways, that's really freeing because I have this sort of illusion that I have to keep real with myself, right? Which is totally not real. I mean, like, it's like I'm making all kinds of, there's, you really can't keep it real with a song. There's no, it's, it's, a, it's a snapshot of somebody's life. And I'm, and I'm constantly tweaking facts in my music to sort of amplify the drama, right? And I think, I mean, the sort of, the, 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 the bait and switch is that people listen to my stuff and it's very literal music now. It's straight up. But the reality is like, once you're in the mix, if you were to ask me if something actually happened the way it went down in the song, I'd probably be like, well, it didn't really go that way. I had to move this over to make this work. So blah, blah. And I think, you know, it would be great to be able to do that with something that with a brand that people cared about, you know, and I know that sounds like, not that I'm upset that people don't care about my life, but I just, you know, I, I know I have those chops. And so I feel like I'm, you know, what it is, I, I'm like, I feel like I'm Lynn, man. <laughs> well, that's why I, that far. I, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for my Mike D'Antoni, who's stupid enough to put me in the game. You know, <laughs> yeah. I like that. Do you ever go um, back and listen to your old songs? Yeah, I do. I mean, I've been doing it more now because and what of happens the situation. when you do that? You know, I have this different criteria for the songs than I think most people do, you know, and I, and it's funny, especially with this project, I, you know, I realize that as I go down this path, I start to alienate fans because I'm writing about this, you know, and I, I, I mean, it's been really, I've gotten some really nice feedback from people, but I, I'm trying to do things with songs and pop songs that they kind of aren't meant to do, you know, mm-hmm. like pop songs are supposed to be about, supposed to be about unrequited love. And this is, this is about, um, my songs are about. You know, like I have a song, a new album called I Can't Believe You're Pregnant, parentheses, again. Uh, I have a song <laughs> called Pushing Pushin a Stroller Around a Grocery Store. Like that's the name, you know, I, these are the, right. they're, they're, they're very, very Randy Newman-esque. You know, he's definitely <laughs> one of my, he's one of my guys. And I have fans who are like, I can't believe, like, I love what you used to do. You know, why can't you just write songs, like quirky songs about meeting girls? And I'm, and part of me is like, well, that's not. I don't think, I mean, I, I don't, so I, when I hear songs like that, that don't, I, I, like there are older songs of mine that I think I'm proud of because they accurately describe a thing. But when I hear songs that are trying to describe a, an experience that I didn't really have, or I don't feel as authentic, I don't really appreciate those songs. That said, that doesn't mean they're not good songs. I just don't really get into them. And I, and I actually, I try not to play them because I feel like I don't want to shatter the illusion when I'm performing some for somebody that I'm anybody than the guy. So one of my ideas sort of in this world of developing a larger narrative around my music is I'm, I'm sort of cherry picking the songs that fit that, you know, that fit that remit of sort of the, the person I am, because it's, it's, it's weird for me to sing about a song where I'm trying to get laid. Right. It's I'm like, it's like shatters the illusion. It's like, wait, I thought you were a guy with two kids. Like, wait, wait, what? You know? And I think that's sort of what I think in a way, if I'm able to pull the listener into this very, specific prism of seeing like 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 Seinfeld or like Kirby enthusiasm there's something they'll find the universal in it right you know Seinfeld yeah, totally. is the, is the most specific New York niche thing in the world yet it's it's everywhere it's in India mm-hmm. right right because people love the characters and they love the storytelling and i think as there's i those are definitely things that i think about with my music where i said okay if i can really try to honestly describe this experience in my own way as like a white 40 year old male Jewish growing up and live growing up and living in New York <laughs> with all the sort of advantages and, and foibles and everything that I've got and try to just be brutally honest about it. 
it's going to resonate not just with people who look like me. It's going to resonate with anybody who listens to it. That's what I believe. But a lot of times it, 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 it rubs people the wrong way. They're just like, I don't want to hear it. Why are you complaining about people who they don't get it? They're like, why are you complaining about your problems? You know, I got mm-hmm. problems too. And I, I, I question that because I'm like, maybe I'm trying to do something with pop songs that they're not meant to do. You know, I definitely think about that sometimes, but then I just keep doing what I'm doing. Well, man, it's been great. This has been an awesome conversation. And oh, uh, cool. I'm, you're asking yeah, me my favorite stuff, uh, digital media, music, and uh, Jeremy Lin. Well, <laughs> yeah, we'll have to get you back <laughs> on to talk a little bit about, um, you know, your, your parents and kind of growing up. I think that's a whole fascinating sort of section of your life, too. All right, man. Well, thanks so much again for coming on. We appreciate it. And tell us where we can find all your content that we've talked about on this podcast. You can find me at Julian Villard pretty much on all, you know, the Instagram, the Facebook, YouTube. YouTube is Julian Villard one. I don't know why. Um, But uh, and my website and my Kickstarter just closed, but I'm sort of drip feeding the singles out. And the album is called Please Don't Make Me Play Piano Man, official Queen's cast recording. And, you know, I, I'm just, just put my name in there. I'll, I'm relentless. I just show up everywhere. I've got featured videos on LinkedIn. That's how relentless I am. That's a wrap for this week. Thanks for listening to the We Need to Be Doing That podcast. Visit we need to be doing that.com for more episodes and contact information. 